So there's a uh, humanities professor and journalist named Mark Lilla. I guess he teaches at Columbia. And he wrote an article um, some years ago where he explained that when he was 13, he considered himself an atheist. And then the following year, he attended a Christian rock concert and flirted with Christianity. Just kind of considering whether or not he would believe in Christianity. But then he read John chapter 3, the chapter where Jesus talks to Nicodemus about how you must be born again. And he wrote this to explain how he processed reading that passage. One thing Jesus seems to be telling Nicodemus is that he must recognize his own insufficiency, that he will have to turn his back on his autonomous, happy life and be reborn as one who understands his dependence on something greater. That seems like a radical challenge to our freedom, and it is. And Mark Lilla apparently walked away from Christianity because of this, quote, radical challenge to his freedom. So does relationship with Jesus mean a radical challenge to our freedom? Is it the end of your freedom to become a Christian and follow Jesus? How would you answer that? You don't have to answer it out loud, but just think about it, you know, rhetorical question. Or to put it another way, again, just to kind of get the juices flowing and get you thinking about these things, are there more yeses or nos? in the gospel, in the Christian life. How would you answer that? Well, freedom is at the heart of our passage this morning as we continue this series on gospel culture. Um, If you haven't been with us, what in the world is gospel culture? The point of this series is that uh, on gospel culture is to show how the Bible regularly links the truth of the gospel to the relational and community dynamics that this truth is intended to create, to produce, to cultivate. Okay? So, for instance, the patience of God, the way that he has been patient with us sinners who are prone to wander and slow to learn. The patience with God, of God with us sinners is aimed at making us redeemed sinners who are patient with other sinners. Like it would be just dissonant for us to be tapping our toe and like, what's wrong with you? When we all struggle and are slow to learn, right? So the way God deals with us, the truth of the gospel, the way that he's dealt with us actually should shape how we deal with others. The glad and willing generosity of God toward us is intended to create glad and generous givers. The hospitality of God toward us. He's welcomed us in, even though we were running the other way, even though we're like shaking our fists at him naturally. He welcomes us in. Jesus, arms stretched out on the cross, welcoming us in mercifully, graciously, should create a people who are hospitable.
to one another and to people who don't yet know Jesus. The mercy, the kindness, the forgiveness of God toward us through Christ change us at the core and then we get the opportunity to reflect that mercy and kindness and forgiveness toward one another. We love, we lo- sorry, we love because he first loved us and so on. You see the pattern? You see how this is so like woven in to the New Testament, left, right, and center. So our lives as Christians and our church, which is intended to be, intended to be like an embassy of the kingdom of heaven or the vanguard of the kingdom of heaven. So our lives and our church are to adorn the gospel, not undermine the gospel. Our lives, our church should be a living parable of the gospel, not a parody of the gospel, okay? But this is not easy, right? We're gonna need a lot of grace to live this out. It is really easy for us to live out of step with the gospel and to relate to one another governed by the world, the flesh, and the devil rather than governed by the Father, Son, and Spirit, the grace of God mediated to us. So the New Testament is filled with examples of the need of local churches like ours the need we have of grace so that we can live this out. The grace of God that meets our needs and molds and shapes and corrects and cultivates lives and community that beautifully reflect the truth of the gospel, which is why this series is aspirational. It's like what we're aiming at, right? We're not there. We're not, we haven't arrived. We've got lots of room to grow. But what are we doing? Like, what are we here for? Where are we heading? Each of these passages that we're considering in this series is almost like a lighthouse, like a beacon shining light on the path of where we need to head. And the book of Galatians is our beacon this morning. And our particular passage is chapter five, verses 13 to 26. So we're going to read that together. I think you'll see why Romans six was the passage for the scripture reading. Um, We won't really refer to it much, except for maybe one quick um, reference, but it's a really clear um, parallel passage in Romans 6. But our text is Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 26, and you can find that on page 975 if you're using the Pew Bible. So I'll read that together. I'll I'll read that for us, and then um, we can walk down through it and consider what what God has to say to us this morning. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another... Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 
Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. All right, so point number one, freedom. This passage is all about freedom. In fact, look back to the beginning of chapter five and we'll see this again. Paul says it very clearly, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In fact, even before chapter five, back in Galatians 2, He writes this, Yet because of some false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So, just quickly, if you're not familiar with what's going on in the book of Galatians, so the city of Galatia, it was a Roman city. Mainly these are, are Gentiles that have come to faith in Christ. But obviously, Jesus was a Jew, and salvation came from the Jews, and they used to keep kosher, and they circumcised their, their boys, and all of this, sign of the covenant. And so you had these people that came in, these Judaizers is what they're called. They came in and said, oh, if you really want to be faithful You need to be circumcised. And so Paul is saying, no, 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 no. The sign of the new covenant is faith in Jesus. It's not a matter of circumcision or not circumcision or whatever. That doesn't count for anything. We'll get to that passage in a minute. Um, So that's where if you were to say, oh, we need to keep the law in order to be right with God, you would be going back in time. You'd you'd be saying, yeah, we don't really need the cross. We We need to keep the law to be right with God. No, Jesus came and died to reconcile us to God, okay? So this is dangerous. This kind of teaching was dangerous, and Paul is writing to protect them, to protect their freedom. So for us, is trusting Jesus as Savior and Lord and following him, is that an end to our freedom? I know I believe that before I became a Christian. It's part of the reason why I was reluctant to actually submit. So I thought it was the end of fun, the end of freedom. But think about what Jesus himself said in John 8. Maybe this passage even came to mind. If you're familiar with it, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, because they didn't quite understand what he was getting at here, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. 
How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So unless Jesus is lying, to trust and follow Jesus is to be set free and to be free indeed. So when you follow Jesus, you are free and you're on the path to freedom, the path of freedom. So in the context of Galatians, that freedom is set in contrast to two forms of slavery. One, self-justification, legalism is another term for that. So there is a sinful nature that will actually evidence itself in Phariseeism. Like, I'm going to keep the, keep the rules, keep the law, and I'm looking down on all you people that don't, and I'm judging you. So self-justification. I keep the law, and that's why I'm good with God, because of all that I do. Also, there's another form of slavery, self-satisfaction, selfishness, sensuality. It's the selfish, I'm going to do what I want sort of flesh. So there's pharisaical flesh, keeping the rules to be right with God, and there's selfish flesh. I don't care what the rules are (laughs) because I'm going to do what I want. The gospel actually sets you free from both of those hamster wheels to nowhere. They're both hamster wheels to nowhere. You'll never be satisfied here, and you can't ever hamster wheel your way up to heaven and being right with God. So, Here's the point on this whole theme of freedom. The Bible is not simplistic when it comes to freedom. Jesus is not a simpleton when he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Or when he says, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Like, he didn't forget about the fact that he also said, if anyone wants to come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That sounds like loss and you know, maybe burden and restriction, a cross that's heavy. So we need to actually take a minute here and examine our definitions of freedom. Okay, this is going to be kind of the longest point here. What is your definition of freedom? I mean, in our culture, it's freedom from all constraints. That's kind of the common definition. Absence of constraints on our choices. Nobody can tell me what I can or can't do. So if anything limits or constrains me, I'm not free. Maximal choice. That's what we think of as freedom. But that is is actually the simplistic view of freedom. It's actually even an unworkable definition of freedom. A couple quick examples. Imagine a middle-aged man, which I think I now fit into that category, um, who eats certain things regularly that contribute to his happiness and comfort. But then he goes to the doctor And the doctor says to him, you must stop eating these things. If you continue to eat these things, at least at the pace and frequency, you know, that you are, you're going to die prematurely or end up bedridden. Now he's got some conflicting desires. He wants to eat these foods. To not eat them will hamper his freedom and his joy. But he doesn't want to die prematurely. He doesn't want to be bedridden. 
He wants to be able to move about and not be bedridden. What's he going to do? What will freedom be for this man? Freedom from all constraints? To do whatever he wants? What do you do when your desires conflict? Which happens all the time, right? So we've got to recognize that there are actually, let's call it liberating desires and limiting desires. He's going to have to lose one freedom to obtain another freedom. You have to strategically lose one freedom in order to gain another one. So true freedom is choosing the liberating constraints. What do I mean by that? Another example. Think about musicians. Why are some people free to play whatever songs they want? And even like riff on and modify songs, even write new songs. Why? Because they previously chose or had forced upon them by their parents certain constraints that now give them freedom to play. Okay? They accepted constraints to be free to do something. So freedom is not the absence of constraints. That's not even possible in our world. It comes down to accepting liberating constraints. Freedom is not doing anything you want. It's the ability to do truly liberating things, and it's also what results when we choose those truly liberating choices. So then maybe if you're paying attention, the question would be, how do you know what the liberating constraints are and what the limiting constraints are? Anybody asking that question? Like, are you guys all with me here? Okay. Well, this is where we need to know who we are as human beings. What are we for? What are we designed for? What do I mean? Well, true freedom is freedom to fulfill your design and purpose, like a fish in water. If a fish is out of the water on the ground, that freedom is deadly, because that's not what it's designed for right? If constrained to the water, all of its capabilities are like, boom, enabled, and it thrives. Or if you own a car, you can't just drive it however you want. It's not designed to run on olive oil. It's not designed to run on water. I am designed to run on olive oil, my Italian heritage, but that's another thing. Um, You have to change the oil every so many miles, if you just completely neglect that for a while, the, event- the engine is eventually just going to get cooked. And cars have a design, a purpose in mind when they were designed. Your car is not to be meant, <laughs> easy for me, your car is not meant to be used as a bulldozer or a lawn ornament or an aquarium, you know, etc. You get the idea. It's meant to get you from point A to point B. Well, guess what? There's similar laws of the soul and our bodies as well for human beings. So example, you must forgive. If you don't, you'll disintegrate. Someone really wrongs you, you hold a grudge, you hate them, might feel good for a little while, but eventually it will hurt your body. It'll eat you up on the inside. Other relationships will be damaged by your anger and bitterness. So what is our design and purpose as human beings? 
If the Son sets you free, what does he set you free for? What does he set you free to do? Like if you get out of prison, the question is, what are you going to use your freedom for? Well, that's what Paul answers in verse 13. Point number two, freedom to serve through love. For you were called to freedom, brothers. In other words, I don't want you to be enslaved. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. What does he mean by that? He means fallen sinful desires, breaking God's law of love to him and love to neighbor. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what is it that's against our nature, at least as far as how God intended us, designed us to be? Like, you know, water in the gas tank or the fish flopping around on land. Sin is us not living according to how God has designed us. Selfishness, pride, like turning in on ourselves rather than living up to him and out toward others. Pride, thinking too highly of ourselves and kind of wanting to take God's place. That is the flesh. That's the sinful nature. And in the Bible, the freedom we have in Christ is not freedom to sin. Oh, we we can do whatever we want because we're free. No, it's freedom in Christ from sin. Not the freedom to sin, but the freedom from sin's tyranny and dominion. Why is, there such, like, why is this world such a mess? Because of sin. Because of selfishness. Because of pride. So, do you want to be a slave to sin? No. The real freedom comes when you have freedom from sin's tyranny and you can live up to God, loving him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's where freedom is found. Which means, inevitably, we've got to deny and crucify and reject and run from everything that tries to undermine or undo or twist or distort or disintegrate our humanity, how God intended us to live. So we embrace liberating constraints by grace through faith to serve one another in love. So, quick question for the mothers here, since it's Mother's Day, and the rest of us would do well to listen in. Are you free? Feel like, I am just free. I can do whatever I want. Don't imagine any mothers are saying, I just feel so free. Is the, is the role of motherhood full of freedom? No, it's full of all kinds of constraints, right? And, you know, maybe you have your moments, but, like, would you rather go back and have all your ducks in a row and a clean house and a clean car and career success and more money in the bank? Sorry, I'm not trying to tempt you here. Um, <laughs> And no stretch marks, and fewer late nights, and fewer early mornings, and no diapers to change, and, you know, on and on and on, and no one to love? No, of course not. Isn't faithful motherhood a picture of constraints, yes, but liberating constraints? 
So godly motherhood is a picture of this beautiful, sacrificial, willing, servant-hearted love. Mothers accept all kinds of constraints, childbearing, birth, breastfeeding, late nights, early mornings, more laundry and more messes and more mommy, 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 trying to help you sympathize with the mothers here. Mommy, like, keep going. You get the idea. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice for the good of her child, good of her children. All those constraints are chosen for the sake of love. Liberating choices to enable her to love. And when it's done well, not perfectly, nobody does that. When it's done by God's strength, sincerely, authentically, it's beautiful, isn't it? So let's say you have or had a loving mother. Mother, Do you wish she would have rejected the call to serve you through love in the interest of the world's definition of freedom? Let's also consider if you didn't or don't have a loving mother, it's likely because she didn't embrace the liberating constraints of love. So freedom for Paul is not freedom from all constraints. It's freedom to choose love, and the freedom comes from spending your life for the sake of love. That's what happens. Like, this is the path of freedom. So true freedom is not freedom to sin. Ah, we can do whatever we want, you know? We're not going, we've got our get-out-of-hell-free card in our back pocket. We could do, no, no, no. It's freedom from sin. There's actually power to say no so that you can say yes to the right things, which is why Paul shows and warns of the destructive alternative, the things that we need to say no to, the stuff we've got to deny and stiff arm. So look at verse 15. We see this destructive alternative in a couple places here. Verse, first in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, see that's the hunger of the flesh, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. And then he unpacks what this selfish hunger of the flesh produces. Look in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Just think about, I mean, again, we could take time to unpack this. We don't have the time to do that. But oftentimes what this means is you are objectifying a person. Using them for your own selfish pleasure. That's dehumanizing them, right? It's actually dehumanizing you. You're kind of acting like an animal. So the works of the flesh are evident, biting and devouring, and then using. I'm just going to take, take, take. Try to fill up this gaping hole like a black hole in my soul. It doesn't work. Hamster wheel. You'll never be satisfied. Works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. I mean, talk about biting and devour, dividing, biting and devouring. Look at this next group of, of terms. All illustrations of this are context where this biting and devouring happens. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. And then more sensuality, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, and he's talking about habitually as a pattern. I mean, obviously, we are all going to sin in a variety of ways. 
He's saying those people that are on this path will not inherit the kingdom of God. So living selfishly, for me first, me only, free from obligations to love others, that's not the path of freedom. It can seem like it, but it's actually the path to self-destruction. It's slavery. It seeks to hold other people captive to your desires. It enslaves you. It leads to eternal bondage. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God which is why we've got to make war with the flesh. And we can only do it by the power of the Spirit. Look at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, the selfish hungers that cause this biting and devouring. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Anybody ever, uh, or anybody resonate with this? The flesh is always trying to ruin the spirit's fun, and the spirit is always trying to ruin the flesh's fun. So actually, Christians can oftentimes live pretty miserable lives. Because we wish we could do a little more flesh stuff, and then when we do, we feel guilty. The flesh is leading you away from why God made and saved you. The Spirit is leading you toward your purpose. The Spirit wants your life, and my life wants our church to bear the sweet, nourishing fruit of the Spirit, not be torn apart by the works of the flesh, gospel, culture, right? So this stuff taking root in our hearts and taking root in our church is what will bear the fruit of the Spirit. So we've got to walk by the Spirit. Our lives are going to need to be filled with the Spirit and with self-denial, putting to death the flesh, the sinful nature. So point number four, the Spirit and self-denial. We're going to have to say no. Lots of no's. But it's no's to all the stuff that is self-destructive. <laughs> it's the stuff that's killing our ability to love which is why Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Or down in verse 24, do you see it there? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, which may call another passage from Galatians to mind. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So in a sense, what we're doing is we need to keep in step with the gospel. Paul actually says that earlier in the letter. And we need to keep in step with the Spirit. So Jesus loved me and he gave himself for me. I'm not empty without hope or satisfaction or purpose or any of this, and I've got to, like, use you and ah, always be on the take, bite and devour. No, if I know the one who's loved me and he gave himself for me, that fills me up and frees me to serve. I don't have anything to prove. I have the love of God filling me, so I can, I'm actually enabled to serve and to give. And that's the same dynamic that happens as we're filled by the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit instead of biting and devouring, using and abusing, we bear the sweet fruit of the Spirit. 
Look at what the Spirit produces in our lives, in the life of our church. When we crucify the flesh, the right no, and are led by him, when we walk by him, by his leadership and his power, that's what it means to be led by the Spirit, direction and empowerment. He's going to lead us in the right direction, and he's going to give us the power to go there. So verse 22, probably familiar verses to a lot of us, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see, this is aspirational, right? Like, we've got to cultivate this. I mean, who isn't, like, falling short this week? Sorry, my hand should not go up. But don't we want this to be sown and watered and harvested in our lives and in our church? Like, that's what we want the culture of our church to be characterized by. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, um, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, not biting and devouring, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, anger, rivalries, etc. So, against such things there is no law. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If you are spiritually alive because of the work of the Spirit, how do you continue to live this way? By the help and empowerment and leadership of the Spirit. So, a couple things to notice here. Maybe you notice the contrast between verse 19, the works of the flesh, and the fruit of the Spirit in 22. So it's either works or fruit. Hmm. It's not what we do. It's what the Spirit produces in us. Certainly there are works, but they are organic works that start in the heart as the Spirit fills us and changes our desires the right no's, the right yeses, and then the harvest comes up. Also, fruit is singular. Hmm. So it could just be that it's a collective noun. Sometimes people say, ah, the fruits of the Spirit. No, it actually says the fruit of the Spirit. So it could be that it's a collective noun. It could be that Paul is saying the fruit of the Spirit, it all hangs together. It's like organically related could also be that love is the primary fruit of the Spirit, the overarching fruit of the Spirit, and everything else hangs, falls underneath. Why do I say that might be the case? Because earlier on, 5, 6, he says, you know, circumcision, uncircumcision counts for nothing. It can't do anything for you. The only thing that matters is faith working through love. And the law is, fulfilled, is, is summed in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. And then the Spirit produces love. So, fruit of the Spirit is love. Faith works through love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. So, anyway, it's one of those options. Who knows? The Lord knows. But bottom line, only by the Spirit can we fulfill the law of love. We become the people we were meant to be only by the power of the gospel of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, um, let me just give one example of this. The last verse here in chapter 5 says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Okay, so that word conceited in Greek is a, a compound word. 
And it, it literally would mean empty of glory. So we were made in God's image. We're made as these glorious beings. But when we turn away from God and we try to find our significance and, and identity and satisfaction in things of the world, it doesn't work. And we're empty. And so we try to fill the hole. And we also, we, we're very aware of our failures. So we are constantly walking into the room and like locating ourselves. You know what I'm talking about? And so provoking one another is the I'm better than you superiority complex looking down on others. Envying one another is the inferiority complex. Man, I'm terrible. I wish I... When you're empty, you're either looking down because you're like, no, 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 I'm, I got to puff myself up. I'm empty of glory, but... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to puff out my chest and show you that I'm enough. Or you realize I'm really not enough. And wow, they are so much better. I wish. What kind of culture does that create? But what if you were loved by the Son of God who gave himself for you, who loves you and gave himself for you? What if you don't have anything to prove anymore? What if you're totally accepted? If, if he's taken all of your sins and sent them away as far as the east is from the west and you are beloved son, daughter, and you're not going to hell anymore and you are his forever and he's going to be with you till the end of the age and all of his very great and precious promises are yours. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He's with me. He's for me and all of that fills you up, do you need to look down your nose anymore on anybody else? No. You're freed from contempt. You're freed from judgmentalism. You're freed from the moral high ground because you don't have anything to prove. You're actually free to humbly serve in love. And you also don't have to like have this inferiority complex. Everybody's better than me, I'm, you know, because you're a beloved son or daughter. Like, we're all accepted. And there's amazing confidence and security that comes as a result of keeping in step with the gospel, keeping in step with the Spirit. Just one example. So verse 26, conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, that's anti-gospel culture. Verses 5 and 6, through the Spirit, by faith, we await the hope of righteousness, and our faith works through love, that is gospel culture. Verses 19 to 21, anti-gospel culture. That list of the works of the flesh, that should be alien in our lives and in the church. When we see it, we want to put the crosshairs on it and say, no, I don't want that. Verses 23, 22 and 23, that's gospel culture. That's what we're aiming at in our lives and in the church, the fruit of the Spirit. So, last point, let's keep in step with the Spirit. So, we live in a war zone it's not peacetime, folks. But the primary battle line is, is not between Russia and Ukraine. It's not between U.S. and China or North Korea. It's in your heart and in our church between the flesh and the spirit. And at the same time, amazingly, we have peace with God. If you've 
turn from your sin and trust it in Jesus as your Savior. You are reconciled to God. You have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been redeemed, set free, by the blood of the Lamb. You're no longer under sin and Satan and their tyrannical rule. There's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which gets at the tension of this passage and the tension of free and there are constraints. Tracking? Freedom and war. Freedom and fighting. We're freedom fighters. We're fighting for our freedom. That's called the fight of faith. And we're fighting for the freedom of our brothers and sisters. That's called love. So we dare not admit, submit to a yoke of slavery. Whether that be selfishness, you know, to our sinful nature, or legalism, self-righteousness, that's a yoke of slavery. So the Galatians, they had this pagan background. They would have been lost in their pagan idolatry if it weren't for the gospel of grace. But now they're in danger of being lost in religious legalism and self-righteousness. So we can actually wander from the Spirit and not keep in step with the Spirit in two primary ways. And you could see it really clearly in Luke 15. Parable of the lost sons. There's two lost sons, not one. The one was a playboy until he lost everything. And then he came to his senses. So he was lost by breaking the rules. But the older son was just as lost. Actually, he was further from home because he was self-righteous. He would not enter the party, even at the appeal of the father. So license, you know, he just went out and selfishly tried to fill that hole with all the stuff that wouldn't satisfy him, the younger son. But the older son, legalism crept in, and he was self-righteous looking down at others, and he was very, very far from home. So the Spirit wants to keep us from the tyranny and rule of the flesh, whether by selfish law-breaking or by self-righteous law-keeping. Okay? So I'm going to just kind of Read a quote by C.S. Lewis and then draw this to a close here. There's this profound passage in a little-known book called Present Concerns, and it's in an essay called Three Kinds of Men. And here's what Lewis writes. There are three kinds of people in the world. The first class is of those who live simply for their own sake and pleasure regarding man and nature as so much raw material to be cut up into whatever shape may serve them. That would be verses 15 and 19 to 21, right? In the second class are those who acknowledge some other claim upon them, the will of God, the categorical imperative, or the good of society, and honestly try to pursue their own interests no further than this claim will allow. I've got to keep the rules at least enough to be good enough, better than you. I'm good. Legalism, moralism. They try to surrender to the higher claim as much as it demands, like men paying a tax, but hope, like other taxpayers, that what is left over will be enough for them to live on. Their life is divided like a soldier's or a schoolboy's life in school and out of school. Oh, I can't wait to summer vacation. I hate having to go to school. Are you guys making the parallels here? Okay. But the third class is of those who can say, like St. Paul, that for them to live is Christ. This is keeping in step with the Spirit. These people have got rid of the tiresome business of adjusting the rival claims of self and God by the simple expedient of rejecting the claims of self altogether. 
Just put it to death. The old egoistic will has to be, or has been turned around, reconditioned, and made into a new thing. The will of Christ no longer limits theirs. It is theirs. Theirs, freedom. All their time in belonging to him belongs also to them, for they are his. And because there are three classes, any merely twofold division of the world into good and bad is disastrous. It overlooks the fact that the members of the second class are always and necessarily unhappy. The tax which moral conscience levies on our desires does not, in fact, leave us enough to live on. As long as we are in this class, we must either feel guilt because we've not paid the tax. I should be doing better. Or penury. I had to look it up too. It's a cramping and oppressive lack of resources. Or we feel impoverished because we have paid the tax. The Christian doctrine that there is no salvation by works done to the moral law is a fact of daily experience. Back or on, we must go. But there's no going on simply by our own efforts. If the new self, the new will, does not come at his own good pleasure to be born in us, we cannot produce him synthetically. The price of Christ is something, in a way, much easier than moral effort. It is to want him. Opening illustration. We must be born again. Is that a radical challenge to our freedom? Yes and no. It challenges our desire to save ourselves, which can't be done. It challenges our desires to live selfishly and destructively. That so-called freedom. So is Jesus the enemy of our freedom? No. Being born again, turning, again, turning from sin. You see your need for a savior. You can't save yourself. It's a free gift. It's a glorious gift. His love offered to you. Being filled by the spirit of God. New desires are born within. New purpose is given. That is the gateway to freedom. Not freedom to live selfishly. It's not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin and power to love. So yes, there are lots of no's to the gospel. But they are all for the sake of our humanity being restored, conformed to the image of Christ. They are liberating constraints. They're all for the sake of saying yes to loving God with all that we are and loving our neighbor as ourselves and living free, free from guilt, free from condemnation, free from shame, free from wanting to hide in the darkness and looking over your shoulder, you're going to get caught free to walk in the light, no longer enslaved to sin and Satan, no fear of death because to, to be with God is heaven. So captivated by and captive to God and his good and wise and loving design for us, his people, freedom from sin, freedom to love, and find real satisfaction and joy and peace and purpose in Christ now and forever. That's keeping, don't do that, okay. That is keeping in step with the Spirit. That is the gospel culture that we're seeking to cultivate. It's got a gospel freedom vibe to it, and it's got a self-denial, crucify-the-flesh vibe to it. And we can't 
fall off the horse on one side or the other. We need both of those dynamics. The church should be a school and a training ground for gospel freedom. And we're going to need to help each other with that. And the church should be a school and a training ground and a living illustration of, and mothers, you are this, willing crucifixion of the flesh, denial of the desires of the flesh for the sake of love. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and then we're going to close by singing a song like we are really going to need God's power for this, right? We're going to need his grace, and it is mediated to us by his spirit. So we're going to sing, Lord, we need you. So let's express our need and dependence through this last song. Lord, please help us. Help us trust you that every no that you give us is for our good and help us to see all the constraints that the Lord Jesus willingly embraced to set us free. And help us to see all of the yes that is ours in Christ when we are in him and filled by his spirit. In his name we pray, amen.